Intro to Eschatology. This is our final week, our final night, talking about systematic theology in the overview format. So tonight, you see on our, on our next slide, we have eschatological systems and then personal eschatology. So there is eschatology and what we think of as eschatology, and then there's personal eschatology, which we're not going to deal with tonight. But what we mean by personal eschatology is what happens when you die, what happens at the end of your life. So heaven, hell, intermediate state, what is Sheol? Um, is there is annihilationism the right view? Is soul sleep the right thing? Is conditional immortality like only people going to heaven live forever and everybody else doesn't live forever? They just die and that's it. Um, obviously, other other views like um, universalism or inclusivism, and then the biblical view, which is exclusivism. So that, those are kind of the main things that would fall under the category, categories of personal eschatology, but we're not going to get into that. You can just believe at face value that we hold to the conservative positions on each of those issues. We believe there is heaven, there is hell, and we are uh, exclusivists. So only Christians go to heaven and everyone else goes to hell. And that is the reason for missions. So, now let's talk about eschatological systems. So, on our next slide, you will see four main millennial motifs. I intentionally tried to alliterate those, and I couldn't think of a a word for four that starts with an M, but we have basically these four main millennial systems, four main millennial motifs. Number one, historical premillennial, historic premillennialism. Number two, amillennialism. Number C, post-mill. Number D, dispensational pre-mill. I did spell them out in full as a gift to my wife because she wants me to use the full words, but they are very hard to say. So I wrote them in full, but I only said some of them in full. I have listed them here in chronological order from the popularity and the, the inception of them as systems into... Um, to the present day. So first, historic pre-mill was the oldest view that was uh, developed in church history, and then the amill position came after that, and then post-mill rose in popularity after that. Then dispensationalism arose after post-millennialism. So that's why they're listed in this order, and that's why we're going to discuss them in this order. Um, sometimes there might be a temptation to discuss them in in uh, similarity, in order, order of similarity, you might say, well, we're talking about historic premillennialism, so let's talk about dispensationalism after that, and then Amil, then postmill, because Amil and postmill are closer together, and so on. But depending on your view of, pre- of historic premillennialism, it might actually be closer to postmillennialism than dispensationalism, uh, and it's certainly closer to Amil than dispensationalism. So, that is all neither here nor there. The reason for doing them in this order is because of their historical development. On the next slide, you will find the chart. Now, there are a lot of these on the internet. If you just Google eschatology chart, you will find a variety of ones, but they all look basically like this. Um, My goal overall as a pastor is that The church members would obviously know God and know theology, and in your knowledge of theology, uh, when it comes to eschatology, I would want you to be able to make heads or tails of this chart and be able to explain it to someone else. So, if they said, what view do you hold to, and why, and what does it mean, I would want you to be able to say, all right, I want you to Google eschatology chart, and then I'll walk you through this chart and explain what this chart means. So, that is the chart. Obviously, the top historic pre-mill. Can you read that, or is it too small? Too small. Okay. So, it starts with historic pre-mill. Secondly, amill. Third, post-mill. And the fourth one is the modern pre-millennial view. So, yeah, according to this chart, modern pre-mill is the same as dispensational. Um, now, as far as general remarks go, you might it might be helpful for you if you just Google eschatology chart so you can have it for reference uh, and then find one that looks something like this, which most of them will, but you'll there are other ones that have like eight options instead, um, which is not the most helpful as far as this goes. Um, 
Now, in general remarks on our next, next slide, I would just like to say first off that this is not a litmus test for your salvation. You are not saved based on your eschatology. You are not saved based on your view of eschatology. Secondly, eschatology is more important than many of us think, especially those of us who have Reformed eschatology, um, which would be any of the first three. Typically, Reformed folks don't pay much attention to eschatology. So if you are either historic pre-mill, mill or post-mill, any of those people tend to pay much less attention to eschatology than the dispensationalist would. And I would encourage you, if you are in any of those first three categories, that eschatology is actually more important than many of us think. That it does need serious thought. It does need us to pay some attention to it. But then point three, eschatology is less important than a few of us would think. And I would say that, that that is for the dispensationalists. Many dispensationalists think that dispensationalism is a mark of orthodoxy and that it is the be-all, end-all, and everything needs to be all about it. So I was at, uh, when I worked at the food pantry, there were a couple of people, a couple of older ladies who would sit in the front row who were always asking us to do uh, series on revelation, series on eschatology, and they wanted prophecy conferences. And... There are churches and networks and denominations that are completely given over to those sorts of things. And the sermons are always about Israel. They're always about eschatology. And you can literally go for months on end without hearing the gospel or hearing anything about Christ. But it's all about current events, doomsday predictions, and the end of the world. To that person, I would tell that eschatology is less important than you think that it is. But for the rest of us, I would say eschatology is more important than the majority of us think that it is. Point four, there are forms of eschatology that are clearly false, but that's not the realm where most of us live. Most of us are not in the realm of dealing with um, eschatology that is clearly heterodox or contrary to scripture or unbiblical. Uh, Most of us are not in the full preterist circle. Full preterism teaches Jesus already returned. He's not coming back. So there's nothing, we're, we're not looking forward to return of Christ. That is a heretical false position, but I don't think any of us hold to that. And I don't think any of us know anyone who holds to that. So that's what point four is all about, that there are forms of eschatology that are wrong. Now, number five, I want us to be intellectually honest. We need to be intellectually honest, first off, about what our positions actually are, and when I say what our positions are, I mean what, what, they, what the positions are in and of themselves. Sometimes people misrepresent positions. Sometimes they say things are this, but they're really that. Uh, we need to be honest about that. And then we also need to be, we need, we need to be honest uh, about what we hold to as, as individuals. Um, we don't all have to hold to the same thing. Our church intentionally does not have a statement on, like, this is the official policy of the church, and you must hold to this, otherwise you can't be a member. We're not, we're not doing that. Um, this is New York City, and there are fewer than, fewer churches. You could count all the churches on one hand that would be broadly considered like-minded within an hour radius of here. So we don't want to be dividing over eschatology, but we must be intellectually honest about it. So, these are my general remarks. On to our next slide. We have historic premillennialism. So, I have a small, very small version of that chart on the top of the screen, which I'm sure is not legible to you, but it is there. Historic premillennialism, first off, it has a variety of names. So, if you hear people or read talking about historic premill, classical premill, covenant premill, premill post-trib, or kiliasm, those all refer to the same thing, broadly speaking. Kiliasm, I believe, is, I think, Latin for thousand years or millennium. So, these names all are referring to the same thing, historic premillennialism. Now, there are several different versions of historic premillennialism. It is very, very difficult to find reputable teaching on the different versions of this view. 
if you search on it, you will just find people saying, oh, let's talk about the difference between dispensational premillennialism and historic premillennialism. But it's very hard to find um, either a chart or discussion or teaching on the different on the, on the spectrum of historic premillennialism. Nevertheless, there are different versions of it. Now, there are a number of proponents to this position, Irenaeus, Polycarp, Justin Martyr, Papias. Those are some of the early church church fathers. That's, that's where the historic term comes from. Uh, for a full, 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 in-depth, deep dive on this, you can listen to my three-part series on this that I preached from the Romans 11 series. And I had lots and lots of quotes from these church fathers explaining their position. You also have people like John Gill, Charles Spurgeon, George Eldon Ladd, Carl Henry, Francis Schaeffer, D.A. Carson, John Piper, Al Muller, Brian Chappell, and Craig Blongberg. Now, what are some of the key ideas for the position? Some of the key ideas for historic premillennialism would be it is, it is covenantal. It is not dispensational. It is covenantal. Therefore, it is a reformed it has a reformed soteriology connected to its eschatology. Now, if you were paying attention and you know way too much about stuff, you would look at that previous chart and say, well, Andy, was was Francis Schaeffer like really reformed? What about George Elton Ladd or Craig Blomberg? Like, and I would say, well, they may not have been necessarily, but the position itself, if you hold to it as it is, is a covenantal position, which is why it's called covenant pre-mill. It, is, it involves reformed soteriology. Secondly, it has a softer distinction between the church and Israel. So dispensationalism has a hard distinction between the church and Israel. The church and Israel are two separate things. There is no um, bleeding over between the two. Um, and then the Amil position, which we'll get into, has... Um, no distinction between the two in its um, the way it's presented. So the historic premill does have a distinction between the two, but it's a softer distinction. Number three, it I believe this is my controversial opinion for the night it, that it fits naturally with with Reformed Baptist thought. That historic premill fits very naturally with Reformed Baptist thought, which is the reason why in the previous slide you will see guys like John Gill, Charles Spurgeon, um, D. A. Carson, John Piper, Al Mohler. As, as proponents of it, because these are like very well educated, very theologically astute people who hold to Reformed Baptist thought, and on their eschatology, they are historic pre-mill. So it fits naturally be- with Reformed Baptist thought. Um, we are on the key ideas slide. Yeah, I flip back for a second to re- review those names, but. Um, on point four, second coming of Christ is after the tribulation. So this position, if you want to get technical, we're not expecting the return of Christ at any second. We're actually expecting, well, there's this tribulation, and we're going to go through the tribulation. We're not going to be snatched away from it. We're not going to be rescued from the bad stuff, but we're, we're here. Um, and so in that sense... It, it is very much different from the dispensational position, and it's more like the other positions where it's like, hey, we're, we're here for the long haul. Maybe not like the long, long haul, but we're, we've got years left on earth, so we shouldn't be just like, you know, throwing everything in the trash and running for the hills and saying, just hide because Jesus is going to come back and snatch us away. We're not quitting our jobs and sitting on hilltops waiting for the return of Christ as some did during the millenarian controversy of the 1800s. Instead, we are looking for the return of Christ, but it is not going to be happening in the next moment or two. Point five, millennium is after the second coming. So you have the tribulation in, in our chart, which... If you zoom in on your own chart, you'll see this um, tribulation and then this rapture second coming as one thing. They're not spaced out by a number of years, but there's a rapture. But the, the way this view interprets the teaching on the rapture is that when Christ returns, 
during his return, his people, his Christians, the believers, are caught up, they're raptured to be with him as he then comes down onto the earth. So it's not that they're snatched up and then they're with him for seven years during the tribulation and then they return later on so that you have two second coming. You got a second and third coming of Christ. But in this position, it's one second coming of Christ, but he catches up us up to be with him as he is coming down into his second coming, which is the reason why in this diagram, you have an up arrow and a down arrow right next to each other. And then there is the millennium, the reign of Jesus, literally reigning on the earth for a thousand years. Of the different takes, of the different interpretations of historic premillennialism, some view that thousand-year earthly reign, earthly kingdom, as a very literal thousand years. Others view that number as a just very, very long period of time. So, um, then that ends with the eternal state. Um, Number six, this view has a literal tribulation and a literal millennium. So the tribulation is not just, uh, you know, spiritual hardship, like, man, people were saying mean things to me at work. Um, But like, actually, Christians are being killed, Christians are being slaughtered by the thousands and millions and like there's just it's it's apocalyptic in that sense like there's a literal tribulation and then there is a literal millennium the millennium is is where things are actually the way they're described in the bible people actually beat their swords into plowshares they actually have genuine peace uh you don't have bodies falling off of or people falling off of airplanes in afghanistan you don't have um pandemics or pseudo pandemics you have a literal parousia. You you have a literal millennium. You have a literal quasi-heaven on earth type of arrangement. Um, this position and authors like George Eldon Ladd are well known for the term already and not yet. So this position is also sort of this hybrid between um, between dispensationalism and amillennialism in and post-mill in the reign of Christ. So they believe there is the reign of Christ right now today. The reign of Christ has begun. He is King of Kings and Lord of Lords right now. He is, he has all authority. It has been given to him. He is inaugurated to the throne in heaven, Acts 2. Um, He is ruling and reigning right now. But there's more reign to come. So there's the already sense in which Christ is reigning right now, but there is more to come, and that more to come will be a literal millennium where he truly does reign on the earth for a thousand years, and all the things described in Revelation 20 will be fulfilled. So this is the view that I hold to, and I wish that you would hold to it, but I will not hate you if you don't, um, because we move over to amillennialism. My first point is that this is the, tr- the traditional Reformed view. Amil is the traditional Reformed view. I've got two guys, Calvin and Luther, listed here. Um, there's a bunch of other people that hold to this. I didn't bother going for an exhaustive list of those, but this is the ordinary, normal Reformed view. Uh, it fits most naturally within a Presbyterian framework. Um, so... In our era, the church is Israel, circumcision is replaced with baptism, and we read things through a, a much more of a spiritual hermeneutic. And then um, in that system, where it's a more spiritual hermeneutic, you've got a millennium and a tribulation in the Bible, but those are spiritualized. So it's a sp- spiritual tribulation and spiritual reign of Christ. Now, in this system, on either your phones where you're looking at it or on the screen, the timeline is a very simple timeline. You have the cross and then the second coming. You don't have a bunch of other marks in between. There's not all these stages and steps and events and like the newspaper and Israel and 1948 or whatever when Israel became a nation. Um, None of that stuff really means anything. The book of Revelation is essentially entirely spiritual. So you can read it and study it and you find spiritual truths and teachings that are relevant and need to learn them and and apply them and such. But um, 
it's not like you've got the book of Revelation in one hand and a either history book or newspaper in the other hand, and you're just kind of like matching up the items and saying, okay, you've got Gog and Magog, and you've got, um, you know, Russia and China and this peace treaty and that kind of thing. You're, you're not doing any of that within the Amil system. Um, and primarily because the book of Revelation is essentially entirely spiritual within the Amil system. Now, on the next slide, you have Amillennialism uh, in its origination. It's developed out of the Alexandrian school with Augustine. So that's a large part of why it is the way it is, because in the Augustinian and Alexandrian school of hermeneutics, you have these four things off to the right, which is in, in that method of interpreting scripture, you have four things. There is the analogical sense of scripture, the allegorical sense, the tropological sense, and the literal sense. So in the analogical sense, because each, it, they believe that every passage of scripture had these four senses, so when you would read a text, you have to get these four things out of it. So the first would be the analogical, which would be the eschatological or heavenly reference. So Jerusalem equals the heavenly city. The allegorical sense, the church reference, uh, Jerusalem equals the church. The tropological sense is the moral sense, the moral reference. So Jerusalem is your soul, the human soul. And then the literal sense of scripture, Jerusalem is the city of Judah. So that's where the Amil system came from, from their hermeneutics. Now, I don't have it with me. I don't have the notes on it um, on hand. But if you want an interesting read, you should read um, Augustine's teaching on the parable of the Good Samaritan. So Augustine's interpretation of the Good Samaritan is kind of wild. When you read it, you're like, whoa, he said that was that? Um, I mean, it's, he, he's, he's connecting dots where there are no dots and saying, like, the horse that the guy was riding on is the whatever. Like, uh, the, the, the cross of Christ is this thing. And, and basically tying together points that... Um, there is no exegetical or biblical basis for you're just you're 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 pulling these out of your imagination. Um, now, I believe a lot of amillennialism today is a lot more careful with scripture than that, but nevertheless, it is still built on this kind of spiritual framework where um, it would just raise a lot of questions. Where you would say, "Well, on what?" basis are you saying that that equals this, this thing? Um, the Amil position, their, their next event is the second coming of Christ. That's what they're looking forward to. And Israel is irrelevant. I wasn't sure if I, could, if I should frame that that way, but I think it's true. Um, if someone is truly holding to the system, the fact that Israel exists as a nation is completely pointless. There's, it's an irrelevant detail. Um, now, there's a lot of Amil people today who don't stick with the system. Like, they hold to, the, to elements of the system, but they believe in um, future salvation for ethnic Israel and that the development of the nation of Israel in 1948 is important because that's part of the fulfillment of this literal prophecy. And I know of a variety of Amil people who hold to that. But in that belief, they're departing from the pure system of amillennialism and hybriding it and like adding some parts from some form of premillennialism. Now, thirdly, we have postmillennialism. We have Edwards. Uh, Jonathan Edwards, B.B. Warfield, um, Strong, is it Augustus Strong? Um, Hodge or the Hodge brothers, these were involved in founding of Princeton Seminary, uh, and then R.C. Sproul. Now, this view almost completely ended in World War I. You got World War I, the Great Depression, and then World War II 
really devastated this position. This position was popular back during the Puritan era. That's why um, um, Ian Murray has a book called The Puritan Hope, because the Puritans were all post-mill, for the most part, and they believed that the world would be Christianized, and that was part of their theology and part of the beliefs behind, honestly, behind the founding of America. Um, coming to America, making a city on a hill, and the New Jerusalem, and a variety, a variety of things that uh, people thought. And there, there was, in large part, a lot of movement towards that. There was a lot of development of Christian ideals in society. Uh, this is why in the colonies of the U.S., they had, well, and much of Europe, they had like state churches, and you had mandated Sabbath rest, Sabbath worship. Um, everybody's a member of the church, like everybody in society is a member of the church because you had state churches, and the world was Christian. Now, that didn't necessarily go super well, and there, there were problems that arose from that. Um, nevertheless, that, that view um, pretty much was, was very popular and was the dominant view until the World Wars. And then in the World Wars, where you saw one Christian nation blowing another Christian nation up, I put all that in quotes because I don't believe that a person is Christian because they were born in a certain zip code. Um, but that, that devastated this whole system, this whole idea of the progress and development of society towards the return of Christ. Now, today, this position is, is undergoing a major, 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 major renaissance. Um, it is, I don't know numerically how popular it is. It's, it's really hard to tell. But um, 20 years ago, you couldn't find someone who held post-millennialism. Today, it's kind of cool to be post-mill. Um, it goes with like tattoos and cigars and whiskey, and it's this, it's this culture. Um, it's definitely the hip thing to do to be, to be post-mill. Um, I mean, hey, even James White jumped over from, he was Amil, right? I think, was he Amil? And then now he's post-mill. But if you listen to his video on why he's post-mill, his explanation of it was like, well, I wanted to be optimistic, which is point D. Post-millennialism is distinctly optimistic. Uh, it's very optimistic. It's so optimistic. You're like, are you on drugs? Like, what are you talking about? This it, people are falling off of airplanes right now, and the world is just getting better and better and better. Um, like, come on. So the next one, the next slide views post-millennialism views the arc of history as a growth of the gospel, and which they would respond, okay, well, right now it seems bad, but this is just a moment in history. And if you zoom out and you look at the whole scope of human history, yeah, there's more Christians today than there were, you know, 500 years ago, by a long shot. There's more gospel-preaching churches today than there were you know, 500 years ago, also by a long shot. And so the world is more Christianized than it used to be. And, you know, that, that might be so. I don't know. I'm not an expert on statistics. But that's, that's one of the things that uh, a conservative postmillennialist has to hold to because they are concerned with the spread of the gospel, the preaching of the gospel, the conversion of the lost. And for a conservative postmillennialist, it's not um, it's not based on um, like the global GDP. It's not based on the financial status of certain people, because we would recognize that you can be wealthy and be on your way to hell, and you can be poor and be a Christian, and that your financial status really has nothing to do with whether you are or are not saved. Part of this view is the idea that Jesus' return will happen when the last elect person is saved, or, or when the last elect, yeah, I think that's it, uh, the last elect person is saved, or, or all of the world has the gospel preached to them. So that's, that's also part of this sort of Puritan hope, Puritan effort, is like, we're, we're going to evangelize the world. Now, there is biblical basis for that. The scripture does say that uh, once <laughs> the ends of the world hear the gospel, then Christ will return. But both the premillennialist and the postmillennialist can look at that verse and say, yeah, I agree with that. The premillennialist would say that that's going to take place during the millennium. That's when the world will be fully and finally evangelized and the earth will be covered with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord. 
Now, on the post-mill system, you have liberal post-millennialism and conservative post-mill. Um, the liberal post-mill, it was so widespread for the last hundred years because, like I said, the theology really ended with the world wars. And the only people that held to it, besides R.C. Sproul, who was kind of this oddball figure in the recent history, the people that held to it were theological liberals. And it was so common that in a lot of theological literature, you will see in brackets, in parentheses, next to postmillennialism, you'll see the words liberal. Particularly in like dispensational textbooks, where they're like, yeah, that, that, that's what the liberals think. Um, Today, however, there is a large contingency of conservative post-millennialists. These two, if they're not careful, if they're not close to Scripture, there can be a significant bleed over between the two. Where the ideas of the reign of Christ, the kingdom coming, is separate is is no longer tied to gospel proclamation and conversion but instead becomes an issue of the development of technology or the eradication of poverty or um digging wells in africa all of those things are great things like it's great that we have an iphone today but i believe that the iphone is not an evidence of the kingdom of god i think that it is simply a technological development but that can be construed as a evidence of the dominion mandate being fulfilled in the kingdom of God coming to the earth because we're pushing back the curse as we are spreading the gospel and Christianizing the world and see, look, we now have less people that are dying of starvation and less people that are dying of um, waterborne bacterial illnesses that cause the children in Africa to have diarrhea and die. And that is happening less and less and less because, look, the spread of the gospel. That idea, which I have heard conservative post-mills preach, is really, really heading towards theological liberal definitions of the kingdom. And so, if you're not careful, your post-millennialism can become that, where it's really just focused on building Christian businesses, building Christian societies, having Christian little league teams, having Christian grocery stores. Have, like, you've got to stick to the gospel proclamation. Now, last, and certainly not least, you have dispensationalism. You have um, a very complicated chart which can be hard to make heads or tails of. So you've got um, dispensationalism was developed in the 1830s, built on the concept of dispensations. Well, what is a dispensation, you might ask? A dispensation is a unit. So think about a soap dispenser. You push the thing, and it out comes a little unit, a little segment, a little piece of liquid, a little glob. And so in dispensationalism, you have these units of history. Dispensationalism believes that there are seven in history, in world history, and they would believe that right now we are in the church age. Now, believing that we're in the church age does not mean that you're a dispensationalist, but if you are a dispensationalist, you believe we're in the church age. This is based on a literal or literalistic hermeneutic. So there. Their hermeneutic drives everything. They have a hard distinction between Israel and the church. They would say the church is not Israel in any case, in any shape or any form. And this view has been the primary eschatology in the U.S. over the last 150 years. Not exclusively, but for the most part. It, it has become wildly popular. Um, like I've heard charismatics claim to not be dispensationalists here in New York City. And I'm, I'm just sitting here listening like, I'm not sure what you're talking about because you are a dispensationalist. Like, you're not a charismatic unless you're a dispensationalist. Like, it's all part of that same system because their view of Acts 2, this is the time when God is um, giving dreams and visions and so on and so forth to men and women and they're going to prophesy. And that's the reason why it's okay for women to preach in church because we are in this era. 
And the fact that you're in this era means you're a dispensationalist. It is the default position of much of American Christianity. This is the reason why if you walk around on the streets of New York City today, and I mean today, literally, if you walk out of here and you go ask people, um, who do you think the Antichrist is? And they know what you're talking about. Or if you say something about the rapture, and people know what you're talking about, that's because dispensationalism, dispensationalism is that popular. It is. Like, People know what you're talking about, at least in theory. The idea of the pilot of your airplane being raptured and just leaving like a set of clothes on the airplane. Like the left behind books, that, that whole thing. I mean, they've sold, I had the number in my last sermon, was it 68 million copies or something? Um, so it, it is very, very popular and is the default position for much of American Christianity and all of the non-reformed part of American Christianity. The, um, the eschatological debate really only even happens after you get out of, um, out of broader mainstream evangelicalism. So like if you're looking at a, a megachurch in America, um, I almost guarantee you that it would be um, dispensational in the average person's thinking if you go up and interview someone in the pew. Uh, today, however, on the next slide, today there are four versions of dispensationalism. This is another thing that people have to, this is why I said be intellectually honest. You've got to be intellectually honest, and that is that there are actually at least four different versions of dispensationalism. So, for lack of a better term, thinking on a, on a right-to-left spectrum, you've, you've, or left-to-right, or whatever, you've got hyper-dispensationalism on the furthest extreme, furthest away from uh, like kind of a hyper-hyper uh, covenantal theology, fatalist-type Theology, you've got hyperdispensationalism, and there's classical dispensationalism, and I misspelled that second dispensationalism. Then there's progressive dispensationalism, and then leaky dispensationalism. And I do not know what leaky dispensationalism is, um, other than uh, MacArthur describes it, and he says, well, it means a future for ethnic Israel, and that's it. Um... I'm not sure if that's really it or not, but I don't know because I haven't sat in these classes for long enough to really know the ins and outs of it. Dispensationalism, by definition, does not have a covenantal soteriology. It has a dispensational soteriology. Now, progressive dispensationalism is known for its association with a like four-point Calvinism. A lot of four-point Calvinists are progressive dispensationalists, and they have a... Uh, sort of a soft view of the different the distinction between Israel and the church. They would they they might say some of them may say that the church is uh, spiritual Israel, perhaps some of them. Um, but it's not uh, it's it's not really easy or fair to to put a one to one uh, definition on that. So hyper dispensationalism would say things like. Um, Sermon on the Mount is not relevant for Christians today because that was given, well, the book of Matthew is written to the Jews and this was Jesus teaching to them and so that's not, that's not relevant or important for us today. Which is a very easy way to get out of some of these hard sayings of Jesus in the, in the book of Matthew. Um, classic dispensationalists would, um, would hold to, I don't know, classic dispensationalism is like uh, Dallas Theological Seminary. Um, they're, they were sort of the, the hotbed for it, the, the brain trust of it. Um, today, uh, the Master's Seminary is where you would find uh, leaky dispensationalism, and um, Bob Jones University and other places like that would be where you find progressive dispensationalism. I'm not sure where you find hyper-dispensationalism. Uh, hyper Going in reverse order, I'm not sure where, what schools you would find postmillennialism taught at, but I do know that there is some, uh, oh, like Moscow, Idaho. Um, 
there, there is some efforts to establish, um, number one, a systematic, like to write a systematic theology that is written from a post-mill perspective. Um, I think that you probably also could just work with Hodges and have the same effect. But um, then also to have sort of a post-mill, post-mill and theonomic um, statement of faith, because right now no such thing exists. And then also to establish uh, a seminary of sorts for teaching that. Um, on millennialism, uh, go to Reformed Theological Seminary, um, just really kind of any traditional Westminster Seminary, uh, either Westminster East Coast or Westminster West Coast, any of those schools would teach on millennialism as their default position. And back in the day, um, on the historic premillennialism that was uh, popularized through George Eldon Ladd at Fuller Theological Seminary and Carl F.H. Henry, who was also involved with Fuller. Now, today, you're not really going to get anything remotely biblical out of Fuller because um, it's extremely, extremely theologically liberal. Um, so today, um, it's not so like cut and dry as far as who holds to what and where they can be found. Now, I've come to the end of my slides, and it is 8.09. So, are there any questions on eschatology or any of these things? Yeah. Okay. Can you go back to the slide for historic pre-mill? So, basically, you've got... Um, from left to right, you've got the time and history leading up to the cross, at which point you have a transition from the Old Covenant to the New, and you've got the Church Age, so that you've got this long uh, block of time there at the top of the screen. That's where we are right now. Now, according to this version of historic premillennialism, it says the Church has replaced Israel, but that's in with the five different versions of historic premill, where may or may not, and then you've got a line there where you've got the Great Tribulation after that. And so that's what a historic pre-mill person is, is looking at the world today and thinking, is this the beginning of the Tribulation? I don't know. It might be. The dispensationalist is looking at the world today and saying, this is not the Tribulation because Jesus hadn't come back yet. It can't be. It can't be the, the Tribulation because Jesus is getting me out of here. Historic Primal says this this might be it. This might be the beginning of the tribulation. Um, the next event on the historic Primal timeline is the rapture slash second coming, which is effectively the same event. In scripture, you get multiple passages that refer to that, but the historic Primal position um, has those right next to each other. So Jesus comes down. Those alive in Christ are uh, caught up to be with him. And in that same, that, that whole flight, you go up and then come down. And he establishes his millennium here on the earth with a thousand year reign. So, so if you've already gone up and come back down? Yeah. You go up to be with him and then you're like... And depending on how literal you read Revelation, because there's this range within the historic pre-mill position, um, there, there very well might be this, this huge battle, the, the whole Armageddon thing, um, and then this millennial reign on the earth with headquarters in Jerusalem, rebuilt temple, so on and so forth. Literally. Like, genuinely actually happening. Um, and then at the end of the thousand years, you have uh, great white throne judgment, the wicked cast into the lake of fire, the Christians go on into new heavens, new earth, eternal state. So, Paul, once you've been raptured, mm -hmm. all right, then you come back. Mm -hmm. Do you go on living for a thousand years? Yeah, you have living for a thousand years, a millennium. You, you get to live that long with Jesus? I think so. There's some question marks, but yeah, for the most part. 
Yeah. So the millennium is th- this, that's kind of one of the issues with the historic pre-mill position where you're like, you start prodding and because the on-mill position effectively views the millennium as the same thing as like heaven. And they would say, well, a thousand years, it's, you know, it's in Revelation, it's highly apocalyptic, it is spiritual language, a thousand years is such a, such a big number, and it's such a, like, square round number that, like, square round. Um, it's, it would be easy for that not to be a literal number. It would be easy for that to be a spiritual number that just refers to he- forever and ever. Um, Kind of. I mean, not like... Because you've got the kingdom, the kingdom of God, kingdom of heaven. And if that's just going to like kind of bleed on over. Um, but you also have this, the millennium occurring now in the millennial position, on, on, in amillennialism. Like right now you've got um, the kingdom of God coming to the earth. And so... But as far as the passages of Scripture that specifically address Millennium, Revelation 20, um, it can sound like heaven. But it also sounds like an almost heaven. And if it's an almost heaven, that raises questions like, why do we have an almost heaven? Why do we have a millennium where like Jesus is here, you see him face to face, but there are some people who aren't glorified. And if you do see him, aren't you supposed to be like him? Because you saw him as he is, so you're glorified. And if you're glorified, why are people dying? Why do why does a young man die at the age of 100? So there's there's a variety of issues, but there's issues with every position. So, and that's part of my be intellectually honest thing, because if you're not being intellectually honest, you will say, there are no issues with my position. My position fits. It, it, it fits some passages, but it doesn't fit others. And that's just how it is. So, Eric. Yeah, for sure. Any other wanting to the the other thing is with and with post mill, there's different versions of post mill too. There's like Westminster classical post millennialism, and then there's like the theonomy post mill, and then there's like liberal post mill, and there's reconstructionist, and and some of these people will try and say no. These there's a difference between theonomy post mill and reconstructionist post mill. And then people will get into the difference between Greg Bonson's views and Russianese views, and I'm just like, all right, cool. This is an overview tonight. We're not we're not uh, plumbing the depths of the differences between like this scholar's interpretation of it and the next guy who they're on the same team, but they have different views and are viewed as opposite teams within their own system. So, any other any other questions? I wanted to do, I ran out of time, but I wanted to do a, here's what this would mean if you were an amillennialist. Here's what this would mean if you're a postmillennialist. Here's what this would mean if you are a dispensationalist. And here's what this would mean if you're a historic pre-mill. Uh, and I wanted to do that related to uh, like meta-narrative, big-picture historical events, such as Antichrist figures, um, Gog Magog type stuff and current events. Like, um, what does it mean that the Taliban has taken over Afghanistan and that China is doing the, uh, what's it called? The, the new Silk Road thing. Um, 
the Belt and Road Initiative. Like, what does it mean that that America is significantly declining in power and you know global domination and um, all that kind of stuff? And then, how do you interpret you know this chapter of Revelation in light of these things? And just kind of lay it all out there for you in visual format. But ran out of time, and this is also an overview. So, any other questions? Yes. Oh, it's certainly debatable. Yeah, I mean, dispensationalists would argue you to the grave that that's what that means. Um, it doesn't mean you're a heretic if you believe that. And I would also, I would stand on that too and say it, it's not heretical to believe that. Um, it's also not heretical to reject that. But it is divisive, according to Titus 3, to say that it is heretical either to believe it or to reject it. And Titus 3 says not to be divisive and causing church splits over such things. So... They don't, they're not looking for that. They're not, they're, yeah, there's no, like, right? Am, am I right? Like, there, there's no rapture, it's just the second coming of Christ. Okay, that's the it. The rapture does not exist. Like, we will get raptured, but like, we will go up into the air with Christ and all that, but we don't think that we'll come back down. Yeah. We think that we will submit that. It's just, it's what well, we do not have to do. Yeah. Yeah. Robbie. <laughs> Is that what? Yeah, so that also depends on depends on what your system is. So within the pre-mill system, um, that, that was the thing I meant to, to get into was there's pre-trib, mid-trib, post-trib, which is a whole drop-down menu underneath of premillennialism, which we didn't even get into that. But um, so within the pre-mill system, there is a belief in this proper tribulation concept as a seven-year feature, a seven-year period of time. And so within that system, you've got the first half, the first three and a half years, which is what, 1,190 days or something? I don't remember. But it's, it's a number of days that comes from the book of Daniel. And they would view that the first half of that is the tribulation, but it's not the great tribulation. And then, I don't remember the event, but something happens in the middle of the tribulation where now it gets a lot worse. The mid-trib people, uh, which I finally met my first one uh, like a year ago, this guy, uh, a friend of mine, Craig, uh, uh, what's his name? I feel bad, I can't think of it. Craig Mitchell. Yeah, Craig Mitchell is is, uh, mid-trib. And so he believes that, and well, mid-trib people believe that, so the, the tribulation is bad, but then the great tribulation comes in the second half, and that's because the, all the Christians have been raptured out, they've been taken away, and then now in the second half of the tribulation is when things are just like really, really insane. Um, I read as I was preparing for this that there is technically a distinction between a person who holds to mid-trib and a person who is pre-wrath. So the idea is that the wrath is not poured out in the middle of the tribulation or until the, the middle of the tribulation. And because um, the Bible is very clear that Christians don't experience the wrath of God. Correct. Which is part of the problem of that that argument. If you're like, wait, when Christians don't... Yeah. Also, the issue of... Um, well, the, the, the reality is that a Christian and a non-Christian can experience the same hardship. And for the Christian, that's not the wrath of God. And the non-Christian, that is the wrath of God. Um, so for the Christian, um, they're experiencing uh, a, a contact of mine. Uh, somebody went to school with got in a plane crash. Private pilot 
her airplane crashed like two days ago, three days ago. She survived. The plane hit the tree and kind of like got quasi caught in the tree. Like the tree didn't, sm- the, the plane didn't smash into the ground, but it like almost did. And it was bad. Like the, the wings got ripped off the plane and everything. So for her experiencing that plane crash, let's say that she died. She didn't, but if she did. So she dies in the plane crash. She is now in heaven with Christ, not experiencing the wrath of God. Let's say the co-pilot is not a Christian, dies in that plane crash, is now not in heaven. But then that gets into the question of, like, do they go to hell or are they in like this 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 holding place or they go to hell but hell is the holding place which is then cast into the lake of fire nevertheless depending on how you slice the pie and how you define it like they are experiencing agony apart from the good favor of god and they're suffering under the the wrath of god in that same event that plane crash um we can have the same thing with with other things that are lesser like uh, cancer diagnosis um a Christian experiences that as the discipline of the Lord for his good, for the glory of God, for his sanctification. And uh, the unbeliever experiences that for a variety of other purposes, perhaps including um, to draw him to Christ, to save him, or as a consequence of his sin. Uh, let's say it's some type of cancer that is a direct cause for a direct result of sin. The Bible says the way of the transgressor is hard. And so it's natural that certain sins do lead to physical uh, consequences. So anything else? Yes. So Yes, and technically, theoretically, it's um, it's also a difference of, of disposition and attitude. The post mill, they just they're so cheery, they're so excited and happy. Um, the ah mills tend to be a bit more um, realistic. Um, but yeah, I'm sure if you ask like a Eric or if you had Eric and James sitting here on two chairs and discussing it between themselves, because they're both committed to Amil and Postmill, and they would have like a lot of a lot more nuanced explanation. Anything else, Trenton? About dispensational. Have you heard of Arminianism? So, so basically, you've got like th- there's a lot of different versions of this, and that's the issue. The problem with every single one of these things is there's like 40 versions of every single thing. But within classical dispensationalism, you have um, like the Schofield Study Bible, uh, Ryrie Study Bible. Um, in those, in those, those study Bibles, the the notes in them and their their theology is not built on, like, let's say, covenant of redemption, um, old covenant, new covenant. It's not based on covenant of redemption, covenant of works with Adam, and then new covenant with Christ's fulfillment. Instead, um, some in the classical and hyper-dispensationalist views, they would say Old Testament saints were saved by works. And... Progressive dispensationalists and leaky dispensationalists don't believe that because they're like, wait a second, the Bible clearly says that Abraham was justified by faith. Um, I don't know or I don't understand why a hyper-dispensationalist or a classical dispensationalist would say the things that um, Schofield said. I don't know why they would say that because the Bible is very clear that Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Um, but nevertheless, the dispensational system is is not reformed in its understanding of salvation, but instead is um, is more Arminian, um, is more uh, semi-Pelagian. Um, it's you like kind of cooperating with God for your salvation. Um, 
which at its core is like kind of semi-Catholic in its view. So anything else? Alexa, you got any, any words of wisdom back there? No? Gracie, anything? Clear as mud? <laughs> All right, let's pray, and then we'll sing the last song. Father in heaven, I thank you for this time tonight. I pray that it's helpful at least to some in some way. I pray that you would um, help us to, to know you, to not be afraid of the book of Revelation, to not be afraid of thinking about the return of Christ, and that we would... Um, Use this tonight to to as, as a launching point to dig deeper to um, understand systems and paradigms at least a little bit more so that when we look at resources or books or books of the Bible that we have a, a clear understanding of how to understand these things and when we hear sermons or people talking that we know where to place things on a line so that we are not as confused and uh, Thank you for allowing us to be here tonight. Lord, we know that there are many brothers and sisters in Christ all around the world who do not have the freedom to freely gather without fear of consequences. So thank you. Thank you for this. Also, Lord, we thank you for allowing us to gather these um, for these 10 messages, these 10 times to consider systematic theology. I pray that you would um, use this series of times, series of gatherings and meetings for the sake of building up uh, not only this local body, but your body of Christ in the world. I pray that you would um, use this for your glory. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.